following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's God's word. Let's pray this morning. Father, we ask this morning that you would do the miraculous work that only you can do and that by your spirit, through your word, you would continue to do the work of conforming the reflection and likeness of our hearts, of our character, of our souls into that of your Son. That is our hope, that is our expectation, that is our desire for ourselves and for one another, and it it comes by your work. So we ask that you would do that this morning, and and we ask that this morning for ourselves, and we ask that for our brothers and sisters who are also gathered together this morning around the world, but in particular our, our friends and extended family in the Carolinas, good friends that we have all, or some of us have gone to see, and some of us have taught for, some of us have been a part of their churches. Um, We pray this morning that as they find refuge to gather together, uh, that you would as well encourage them through your word. Encourage their affection and their joy by your spirit, even though they don't know necessarily what tomorrow holds for many aspects of their life. Uh, Lord, give them joy this morning. Um, Give them hope in you. Um, Let their love for you and for one another be a living reflection of your son down there in the Carolinas. We ask that, Lord, you would do that for your glory, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this as we get ready to jump into the beginning of this letter. Um, What is it that you want most for the people that you love? Have you ever really kind of given your heart an audit like that, like considered what is it you really want for the people that you love? You know, as a church, we are called by God to love people that we have very little in common with. What is it that we want most for each other? How are we going to express it? What does that love actually look like? 
As we began kind of working our way through this letter last week, we saw and and talked about how the gospel has produced in Paul, just as it does in every single one of us who believes, a real, tangible, eternal, and abiding joy. And along with that joy, the confidence we have in the gospel produces in each and every single one of us a unique affection, a unique bond, a unique love for God's people for each other. I encourage you even through the week to go back and and reread the beginning of this letter and listen for this unique affection that Paul expresses to this church. I mean, even as you go back and listen, look at verse seven. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous statement. I hold you in my heart because you're partakers with me of grace. That is a, a privileged position in the heart of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is not saying that I hold everyone who I encounter and everyone who who walks across the face of the earth in this place in my heart. No, there's something about you that's unique. You're partakers with me of God's grace. By the work of that grace in my heart and in your heart, I I have this unique affection for you. I I hold you in in a place in my heart that is special. The shame of my imprisonment, the shame of being associated with me, the potential fear that you could have for what it might cost you to be a follower of Jesus and an associate of mine, it wasn't strong enough to dampen or or sever this affection that we have. And so I hold you in a, a special place as we enjoy Jesus and Enjoy grace together. This bond of affection is created between us. I yearn, he says, for you all with the affection of Jesus. I mean, when was the last time you actually considered the affection of Jesus for you? I mean, when was the last time in your encouraging of yourself or your encouraging of someone else in the gospel as you consider the life, the death, the the resurrection of Jesus, the riches of the gospel message, when was the last time for yourself you even considered the depth of Jesus' affection towards you? Paul's saying that this affection, this love, this unique bond that is created between us by the gospel, what is reflective of his affection for you and his affection for me. Friends, as we enjoy Jesus and we enjoy grace, there's this unique bond of love and affection that God creates. And we saw last week how it is, it is built out of this shared sense of identity that we have. God has completely redefined who we are. All the casual and earthly associations that we can create amongst ourselves to try to find commonality can't come close to the eternal bond that is created through the gospel. And this shared identity also has a shared purpose we talked about last week. This partnership, this fellowship in the work of the gospel 
partnering together by grace for the good of the gospel, this shared self-sacrificing commitment to a common purpose, this identity and this purpose created by the gospel is used by God to create amongst us this unique bond of love and affection. And nothing apart from the gospel is strong enough to either create this kind of bond, but even hold this kind of bond together between people of such rich diversity and distinction. Friends, it's, it's this gospel. It's the message of God's son. It is a cross-shaped perspective that God gives his people through which we look and view and see and understand one another. It's this gospel that gives rise to this joy and affection. And it's the gospel that gives rise to the attitudes that we are to have when we consider one another and the actions that flow out of those attitudes. And listen to how D.A. Carson puts it. Carson says it. this simply means, this, this gospel root for our affection, for our joy, for our love, for our commonality, this, this simply means that in our conversations we ought to regularly be sharing in the gospel together. And what I mean by that, he says, is delighting in God. It's another way of what we say around here when we talk about enjoying God or enjoying Jesus or enjoying grace. We ought to regularly be sharing the gospel together, enjoying and delighting in God, sharing with one another what we have been learning from his word, joining in prayer for the advance of the gospel, not the least in the lives of those to whom we have been bearing witness, but encouraging one another in obedience and maturing discipleship, bearing one another's burdens and growing in self-sacrificial love for one another for Jesus' sake. You see, this joy And this affection, this unique bond of of love that is produced in us by the gospel, it is meant to shape the attitudes that we have towards one another and the actions that flow out. This is no mere sentimentality. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. When we talk about this unique bond of affection and love that is produced in us and between us by the gospel, it is not a love without shape. It is not a love without edge. It is not a love without contour. It's not a love without content. It's a love that has legs. It does things. It's not sentimentality or nostalgia. God does something unique amongst his people, partakers of his grace. It shapes the way that we're to think about each other, what we want for each other, and how we express it. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to look back at these same verses and see how this gospel that has produced this joy in Paul and this affection, this love for God's people, and and has produced in them this same joy and affection that has returned back to Paul, how is he expressing the way that it shaped his attitudes towards them and the way this love and affection is borne out, is played out in his life? So let's look back at it this morning and, and see how this has happened. Look at verse three. Paul says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. The gospel has has shaped the attitude that Paul has towards these people, fellow partakers of grace with him, partners in the work of the gospel, and his attitude towards them is one of gratitude to God. I rhymed that for some of you. 
you know I don't do that very often. I was telling the nine o'clock service, it was probably the airport food, but I was sitting there riding last night, sitting in the airport. It's like, attitude, gratitude, that works. <laughs> Paul's attitude towards this church is, is one of gratitude to God. Paul was grateful for the church, grateful for their partnership, grateful for their fellowship, grateful for their affection, but he didn't tell them that. Did you catch that? Paul didn't tell this church, thank you for praying for me. Thank you for sending money. Thanks for sending Epaphroditus when I was in prison to encourage me and bring me what I needed. Thank you for all that you have done for me. That's not what Paul said. You can keep reading the rest of the letter. He never thanks them directly for what they did. Go and read the rest of Paul's letters, where his prayers, where his words to churches are expressed regarding their partnership with him in the gospel. He never thanks them directly for what they do. The Philippians prayed, they supported, they sent money. But Paul expresses his gratitude first and foremost to God for them. See, Paul knows something about the human heart, about his own heart, about their hearts, about my heart, about your heart. Paul knows the capacity that pride has to to get a foothold in the heart. For flattery to take root and begin to flower in the human heart. So rather than thanking them directly for what they had done, Paul thanks God for them. And I want you to know that that is good and right. That is a healthy, God-glorifying, people-affirming and encouraging way of expressing gratitude. It's okay to tell people thank you for things. I'm not saying don't say thank you. It's a perspective, though. It's an understanding that behind all of the ways that this love, this affection, and this partnership has played itself out tangibly in Paul's life, he can rightly redirect the glory for the fruit that is being born through that affection back to its rightful source. It is God who has worked in you that has shown himself in a certain way through your affection and partnership to me. So in all my prayers and at all times when I consider you, I thank God for you. what if that was the way that we began to actually talk around here? I mean, what if if that kind of gratitude became what we were known for in our relationships with each other? When you enter my mind, Paul says, my thoughts just reflexively roll up to God in gratitude for you. This gratitude to God for them, it's born out of an enjoyment of the grace of God in the gospel. So let me say very generally, but very honestly, on behalf of your pastors, we are so grateful to God for you, for your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel the ways that we are able to observe, the things that we hear about God doing in you and through you for his glory and the good of those around you are absolutely staggering. Sometimes people ask me questions because of the role that I have in the church. They just assume that I know a lot of things, but I don't. I'm always hearing stories of what God is doing in your life and through your life for the good of the people that he has put around you 
And I could not be more thankful to him for you. We are thankful, truly thankful to God for you. And the question that we have to begin to wrestle with, though, when you look around, like we did last week, to your right and your left, those in front of you, those behind you, do you thank God for one another? As you think about one another, fellow partners in the fellowship of the gospel, saints and partakers of grace with you, do your thoughts roll up reflexively to God in gratitude for them? What do you think would happen if this became a characterizing aspect of life at Redemption Hill? Friends, this attitude, this, this gratitude that Paul expresses to God for this church, it's, it's born from the gospel and from a deeper and ongoing enjoyment of God's grace. But it's not sentimentality. I think one of the dangers that we always face, if, if you're one that, that teaches people the Bible, if you enjoy talking to people about the love of God and, and the realities of the love that God produces in the lives of his people, and you talk about passages like this, like affection and love, and the challenge is always to try to find a word to capture the fullness of what he's saying because in our day and in our age, words like love and words like affection have become so emptied of their weight and meaning, you either have to choose to take the time that you have when you're teaching to try to put the weight back in them or find another word that tries to capture the meaning because when people hear love and affection, they think sentimentality. And that's not what Paul is talking about. This affection, it, it has edges it has content. This love has action. It, it has legs. It does things. It moves. It, it goes. This joy that is born in the heart of God's people through the gospel, this affection, this unique bond of love that is created by God is expressed. It lives. One of the chief expressions of this affection is prayer. It's intercession. In verses three and four, Paul speaks of his regular, affectionate, joyful prayer for this church. A reflexive action that is born out of this affection produced by the gospel. Not a mere tingling warmth of sensation as he thinks about the church, but it immediately produces something. It's a love with content and action. Regular, repeated, joyful, affectionate prayer. And then in verses 9 through 11, we get the content. And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time on this morning. And as we do, I want to remind you, as we did last week, that what we read here is in one sense illustrative of the work of God's grace in the life of Paul and the life of this church, but it's not meant to simply be illustrative. It's meant by God to continue to be instructive for his people now, fellow partakers of this same grace. And so as we go through this, I want you to be thinking and asking in the back of your mind as, you, as we talk about the, the content of Paul's prayer, is this what we want for each other? Is this what I want for myself? Let's listen to what Paul has to say. Look at verse nine. 
It is my prayer. This is that affection that has legs, it's running, it's doing something. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. And so if you slow down and read it for what it is, there's, there's something very important that is assumed there, that is implied there, that shapes the way we understand the content of what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, I pray that you would have this love in you. Paul is saying this love exists. You have this. By virtue of being a partaker in the grace of God, you have an entirely new nature, a new heart, a new spirit, the very spirit of God at work in you. The deep and abiding love of God is in you. It is there. Paul's not saying, I pray that God would put his love, this deep and abiding love in you. It's there. See, this is different than than every other religion, every other philosophy, every other idea on earth. Every other idea, every other religion is telling you that you've got to continue to work to become what you want to be, to work to become what you not yet are. Paul's saying, no, this is who you are. God has given you an entirely new identity, The abiding love of his son is alive and at work in you and it is poised for growth. You and I are always in the process of becoming and living out what we already are. But God has made us by his grace. Paul wants for them their maturity. This is what he's praying for. He's praying for their growth. Paul is praying specifically for the love that God has put in them to grow more and more. And if we're really honest, and we talk about that around here a lot, sometimes this is the hardest place to be honest with yourself, but if we're really honest with ourselves and we consider our prayers for one another, what we tend to want most for each other and what's reflected most often in our prayers for one another is relief from a crisis, I mean, if we're honest, that's generally where most of our prayer for one another stems from. But what if we actually wanted more for one another? Believed that God is gracious enough to answer that prayer. And from this affection bond that he has created between us, it began to flow out in this desire. It's my prayer that your love may abound grow more and more. But again, it's not this kind of amorphous, nebulous, sentimental, emotive feeling. It has content and purpose. So Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in very specific ways. There's specificity to this desire. He prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge, truth, is an aspect of love. Everywhere this word is used in the Bible, it is used in every instance in connection to the theological knowing of God. Some aspect of his character, his attributes, his action. It's always connected everywhere in the Bible to some aspect of spiritual dynamics. Paul is praying that their love would abound, it would grow, that they would come to enjoy God more deeply, enjoy his grace more sufficiently, 
And you know it to be true in your own life. The ways that you find yourself enjoying God more deeply, enjoying Jesus more deeply, enjoying grace more deeply, living more confident in the grace of God is as you come to increasingly know him. That's how it works. So Paul is praying that this love would abound, that it would continue to grow, it would continue to mature as they come to know God more deeply and personally. But it's not just in knowing him. It, it's knowledge that's coupled with discernment. I love how James Boyce, uh, he was a pastor for decades in Philadelphia. I love how James Boyce describes this discernment. Paul says that this discernment is essentially the ability to discern what is best. The word translated discern in classical Greek refers to testing something or someone. It's the technical word for testing money to determine whether or not it's counterfeit. It occurs in the political context for testing a candidate for office. Herodotus, the the Greek writer, he uses the word here for the testing of oxen by Egyptian priests to see whether they're fit for sacrifice. The Apostle Paul, he uses this word in his letter to the church in Rome when he says that Christians are to be renewed by the Holy Spirit so that we may test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. The love that Paul is praying would abound more and more and grow and mature more and more is a love that looks like knowing the truth of God more deeply and being able to discern and apply the realities of him to your life. He's praying that their love would grow rooted in truth and abounding in discernment. Friends, do you want this kind of love to grow in you? What about the person sitting next to you? Is this what you want? Would you begin praying for that? Again, this isn't some kind of empty, uncontoured love. It's a love with content, but it's a love that has effects. There's a reason that Paul is praying for their maturity. There's a reason he's praying for their abounding love in knowledge and discernment. There's something that's supposed to come out of this. That's why he's praying for this. Listen to what he says. So that, right, here is the anticipated fruit of the ongoing maturation of love in the life of a Christian. So that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying for this love to abound with knowledge and discernment so that you and I would increasingly have the capacity to say yes to the things that please God and no to the things that don't. That's a very simple way of understanding what Paul is saying when he says approving what is excellent. This is what love with knowledge and discernment does. It helps you and I to better discern the things that bring God joy, that bring God glory, that please the heart of God and say no to the things that bring him dishonor. The lies of the enemy that seek to destroy our joy. This is the fruit of what this kind of love produces. 
And if you just think about it for just a minute, think about the increasing capacity in your life and in your heart to, with joy, be able to understand that which pleases God because you've come to know him in deeper and deeper levels. You know his heart, you know his desire, you trust his character, and you can say yes to the things that bring him such great delight because they're the things that he has designed that are good for you. And you can say no with joy to the things that do not bring him honor and do not bring him glory and not think two shakes about it. That is an absolute new way of reorienting your life. This is what Paul is praying for. It's an absolutely radical reorienting of life. Being able with joy by the grace of God to be able to discern rightly that which we should say yes to and that which we should say no to. And man, we have to do a lot of that every single day. This is what love produces for our joy and for God's glory. Paul is praying for an abounding growth in this love and maturity for the church, but not just that. This prayer that he is praying and this growing in this love, this truthful and discerning love produces in us this ability, yes, to discern that which pleases God and that which doesn't and be able to say yes to these things and no to these things, but it's also doing something else. It's continuing to work in us a Christ-likeness that God desires for each of us. Look at what he says. So that you may approve what is excellent, yes, and so. Right? There's fruit even from being able to regularly approve what's excellent. So that as your love grows and abounds in truth and discernment, and you're better able to discern through your increasing delight in God what pleases him and want the things that he wants, desire the things that he desires and say yes to those and no to those, something else begins to happen. You become increasingly reflective of the likeness of Jesus. Love that is knowledgeable and discerning enables us to approve what's truly excellent, resulting in an increased conformity to the image of Christ. The inner quality of purity, the external reflection of blamelessness, it's a comprehensive holiness that is resulting from the ongoing abounding growth of this love. The teacher in me can't, can't help but love some of the details. I mean, when we read this purity that abounds in this and grows in this, that, that, is, that comes as we are increasingly able to discern what is most excellent and right and say yes to those things. The purity that Paul is talking about here, this inner quality of purity, it's the word that literally means of intestine. That's what it means. You're of intestine. Now, what does that mean? This is the fun part. In Paul's day, the, the biggest racket going, aside from the tax collectors, was the pottery industry. You see, there, was two, there were two main types of pottery. There was the everyday common pottery you would use in your house, kind of like Tupperware. Very familiar with Tupperware? You guys use Tupperware still? This common pottery was thick. It was solid. It felt more industrial. It did not take very much skill to create. It wasn't the product of a craftsman. People would use it in their homes on a regular basis. But the other type of pottery was what you would probably consider more fine pottery. This was the product of a skillful craftsman. This pottery was far thinner and more delicate 
than the everyday, common, more industrial pottery used in your home. And so when this pottery would go into the oven to be fired, it would often crack. So what's a craftsman supposed to do with cracked pottery? That's how he makes his living, right? Well, what they would do is they had this pearly type of wax that they would fill the cracks in with, and it would take on the, the hue of the pottery itself so that when they would paint it and glaze it in a way similar to what we would do with pottery now, you could not tell that it had ever been cracked. This was such a big deal that they actually created a label that would go on pottery that would say, without wax. Because if you held it up to the sun, if you, if you held it up to the light, you could begin to discern with a trained eye where the cracks and where the wax were. See, what, what Paul is saying when he's talking about this inner quality of purity and, and oven testedness is that as our love grows and abounds more and more in the knowledge of who God is for us and we're able to discern what is best and right and excellent and say yes to that and no to this, this inner quality of purity lacking hypocrisy, of honesty and truthfulness begins to grow. Our, our lives become lives without wax. You see, if you think about what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, you're, you're familiar with it when he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power at work in us is from God and, and not us. He's saying all of our attempts to cover up and artificially disguise our imperfections, all, all of the hypocrisy and the, the faces and the masks and the attitudes and the actions that we put on to cover it up, it all stops the flow of the grace of God working through us to others. See, part of the fruit of this abounding love is a life that is increasingly free of wax. It's oven-tested. It's pure, and it's blameless. It's a life that when presented before God in all creation on the last day, will demonstrate and reflect that it has been in step, in line with the profession of faith that was made. Blameless just means that the life is a life that has been lived in such a way that it's very hard for someone to hang a charge on it. And Paul's saying this is the fruit of this abounding love. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure without wax and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Friends, he's simply praying for a life worthy of the gospel. Is this what you want? Think about those you love. Think about the unique bond of affection and love that God, by his grace, has produced between members of this church who are fellow partakers of God's grace. Is this what you want for each other? Remember, this is a plural letter. Everywhere you see you in this letter, you should say y'all. Right? I still consider Virginia the South. Y'all. 
Not you guys, or you guys, or whatever you say somewhere else in the rest of the country. Y'all. This is a y'all letter, which means as fellow partakers of grace who share a common bond in the gospel, born out of God's work in us by his spirit, who are partnering together in a shared self-sacrificing commitment to God's purposes on this earth, you and I bear a responsibility for each other growing and abounding in this kind of love that increasingly carries the kind of discernment that helps us together say yes to the things that please him and no to the things that don't. That each of us becomes, by God's grace, together as we encourage each other, as long as it's called today in the gospel, more and more confident to live without wax so that on the day of Jesus' return, when we all stand before him and, and give an account, the life that we have lived will stand up in line, in step with the profession that we've made. Blameless on that day. Friends, I know for some people that seems like a pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna-ish idea. But if it does, I just want to encourage you to take heart. If all of that sounds like it's utterly impossible. Left to yourself, it is. But what Paul is encouraging this church in and what I want you to be encouraged by is that in the plan of God, it's actually a guaranteed outcome. See, this whole section, these first 11 verses, if you wanted to do it that way, you could work through these 11 verses out of verse 6. Verse 6 is the hinge this entire thing swings on. Paul said to them, and what we have is verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Friends, God is not like you and I. I start something, I have a very hard time finishing it. Ask my wife. Take a tour around my house. I either didn't have the energy, I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the power, I didn't have the ability, and so I didn't finish the job. God is not like us. What he has started, he has all the wisdom, all the power, all the desire, and all the commitment to finish. He has willed your salvation and your transformation into the image of his son, and he will bring it to its finished end at his determined time. It wouldn't be a good sermon on Philippians without something from Alec Motyer. I told you, go by his commentary. Motyer said, the assurance that God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees it to every experience of every day. For in all things, God is putting on the finishing touches. He says it that way because the verb in verse 6 is an intensive verb. It means something has been started in its ongoing action what God has started, he's continuing to work on in you. So Matthew says, here's good news for you. And the bad news of what you experience today, the good news you might get tomorrow, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble, it all has a purpose. Concerning all such situations, our faith affirms this. Without this, Whatever the situation is, without this, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. 
Friends, this love is a radical reorienting of the way we understand ourselves and the way we understand the lives that we are living right now. In whatever situation you find yourself in, good news today, unexpected bad news, blessing or darkness, God is putting on the finishing touches. He's making you ready for the day in which he is going to present you complete. That changes everything about the way you see your day tomorrow. Friends, as we prepare this morning to receive communion, I want you to do it knowing something, confident of something. But what God has started by his grace, what God has begun at great cost to himself, the suffering, the death of his son, as you take the bread, remembering his body broken in your place, you dip it in the cup, remembering his blood shed for you, what God has started the great cost of his son, you can be assured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that God is going to bring what he started in you to its full and final completed end. So that in everything, in all things, including your fruitfulness and the abounding nature of your love, all of it will be to the praise of his glory and his grace. This isn't a pie-in-the-sky hope or a dream or something you just expect someone who stands up here to say, this is a guaranteed outcome by the grace of God. Are you willing to want this for yourself? Are you willing to want this for those that you love? Friends, we can and we should so will you join us in praying this way for one another this year with great confidence? I'm going to pray for us now, and then we are going to respond to God's word this morning in a few ways. We're going to start by giving you a couple of minutes to allow you to reflect on God's word and allow you to, to deal with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you in the next couple of minutes, there, there are a couple of prayers that are in that worship guide you got on your way in. Read those, re reflect on those, con consider those. We are so glad that you are here. I want you to know we want to help you better understand who Jesus is and what it means to believe upon him with your whole heart. When we talk about enjoying Jesus and enjoying God and enjoying grace, we want to help you understand what that means that you might live in that reality. Grab one of us. Grab me. Grab Ray. Grab Chris. Grab one of your friends. Ask us. We want to help you better understand that. So in the next couple of minutes, as you reflect, use those prayers. And then we're going to invite anyone and everyone who is here who has repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus as their king to remember him and celebrate him by receiving communion. And again, this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. Our invitation to you this morning is to receive him. To not get up and come forward and take the bread and dip it in the cup, but to receive Jesus. That's what we want to invite you and call you to this morning. And as we come forward and remember him and receive communion, the musicians will be playing and then we'll sing, we'll celebrate. We'll use the mouths and the energies he's given us to make much of him. And then he'll send us out from this place as his people here. So let me pray. We're going to allow you to reflect and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you that you want more for us than we are even able to want for ourselves sometimes. 
we thank you that you have given us these reminders and these pictures and these words. Lord, help us to be a people together who want for each other the abounding growth of love in our knowledge of you and our enjoyment of you. An abounding growth of love that enables us to discern what is most excellent, what is best, what pleases you and brings us joy so that we can run wholeheartedly towards it and we can say no with confidence to the things that don't. God, we want to be without hypocrisy and growing in purity and blamelessness like your son. Lord, help us to want for ourselves and each other the very thing you have promised to work in us. Lord, we ask that you would do this because it takes the work of your spirit to make it happen. You would do this in us for our joy and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.